This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered legal advice. The transmission of information on this podcast is not intended to establish and receipt of such information does not establish or constitute an attorney-client relationship. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements. Welcome to the Thompson Coburn podcast series, Talking Pop Health. I'm Eric Tower, a healthcare transactional attorney at Thompson Coburn. In our last episode, we chatted with Mike Engelhart, Senior Vice President of Medical Groups and Ambulatory Strategy at Trinity Healthcare, about acute care and medical care transformational strategies and establishing clinical alliances and strategic partnerships. In this episode, we're shifting gears and introducing Dr. Sadna Peralkar of Seagal Consulting Group. In this episode, we're going to explore how large employers view and buy healthcare for their employees and what initiatives they're considering to keep healthcare costs under control. Welcome, Dr. Peralker. Uh, why don't we start off with you telling us a little about your career and what you've done? Great. Thank you, Eric, for having me on. Um, so I'm a physician by training, but I switched to a non-clinical track a long time ago, pretty young in my career. Uh, right after my master's in public health, uh, I started working for a large employer uh, here in Chicago uh, called Navistar, uh, and that was purchasing healthcare from a large self-insured employer's uh, side. And uh, after that, moved to United Healthcare, kind of learned my 101s of managed care all at United, um, and then now I'm in the consulting side of uh, healthcare where I'm hem- helping uh, large employers buy healthcare for their beneficiaries. So all my career really I have uh, uh, spent in the employer consulting as well as managed care side. Obviously, uh, because you're on the broadcast, we can assume that that employers are really interested in population health. How, how do you define population health care? Absolutely. And population health is what uh, the uh, employers who are self-insured for their population uh, have to manage. So when you talk about population health, it is really the health outcomes of a group of individuals, whether whether they are employees, uh, the membership that is sponsored by that particular health plan, but it's really a group of individuals and their health outcomes, including the distribution of such outcomes within the group. So regardless of how you define the group, it's not individual healthcare anymore, it's about the health of the group. And that's where you have to sort of stratify within the group, see how the health of the group is behaving in terms of their distribution, and then manage it accordingly. Uh, On typical normal curve, so to speak, uh, you do have about 80 to 85% of your people who are not consuming any healthcare. So they are quote-unquote healthy people. Um, and then the rest of the uh, 15 to 20% is is uh, the group that's really consuming healthcare. And, and every payer of healthcare, whether it's a self-insured employer or a insured health plan, should have a good idea about what that group is and how that group is behaving in terms of healthcare. So why do you think employers should should care? I mean, you know, you offer insurance 
and your employees either use it or they don't, why, why should they get involved with population health? Yes, mainly to to control healthcare costs. As we all know, healthcare costs continue to rise. They will continue to rise. Uh, we are living longer. We are not living with uh, any uh, discomfort anymore. So for every illness and discomfort, there is a drug, there is a treatment, there is some sort of imaging. So our healthcare costs are just going to continue to rise. And the objective of population health is really to keep the healthy people healthy, to to keep the at risk or people with chronic illness manage their illness better. And then the episodic management, or I call that like catastrophic or chronically ill people, managing their health in terms of getting them to the right provider, getting them to the high quality provider, and making sure that they are getting the care they need at the time they need. So when you do all these things together, that's what uh, is is involved in population health, which eventually does lead to managing costs, so to speak. So uh, let's get an understanding about what you mean by cost. Are you talking about the cost of the, the insurance product or the medical care, or how do you define the cost? Yeah, thank you for asking that question, because everything I'm talking about today is really about uh, employers' health care costs, the, the health care expenditure that they have to pay on behalf of their membership. And by employer, I mean either a self-insured employer or a a trust that is formed by a union labor association or a public sector employer. But those who are insuring their members, even though they are self-insured, it's the expenditure on healthcare is what I'm talking about. That that continues to go up, double-digit trends, and they need to have some handle on how they manage it. Okay. Well, well why don't you tell us a few um, approaches that employers sure. are using towards pop health at this point? It all starts with data analysis. And like I mentioned earlier, about 80% of your people are healthy, but the remaining 20% is usually what consumes uh, the 80% of the healthcare dollars that the group spends on uh, their healthcare. I recently saw the statistics that top 1% of the high-cost claimants, or we call it high-cost claimants, or the people who cost the most, uh, who are who are either chronically ill or catastrophic cases, they consume about 30 to 33% of the entire expenditure of that employer. Uh, there is not much you can do about it, about that particular population, other than just making sure that they are engaged uh, with the right provider, they have the accurate diagnosis, so we have programs like second opinion, um, and then early intervention with high quality providers. But the remaining population, uh, for example, my middle bucket, which is the at-risk or getting better people or living with uh, some sort of illness that's manageable. So a diabetic is a great example. A diabetic can manage his or her health by following certain uh, diet, weight management. Uh, they need to kind of be on the uh, drug if they need to, but they can completely sometimes manage by lifestyle modification, the type 2 diabetes especially. So those are the ones that we think uh, the uh, population health can help with health education by managing their adherence to the drugs that they should be taking, uh, by self-care as well as uh, some of the um, comorbid conditions like obesity if you manage that well by diet and nutrition. And then the healthy bucket, which is the 80% of the people who have no illness right now, the objective is to keep them at that level. 
and prevent them from getting from healthy to the uh, at-risk bucket. And that's where the uh, most of the wellness efforts are uh, come in, which is really the promoting healthy lifestyles, uh, doing some health risk assessment so you know where they stand in terms of their risks, uh, engage them in preventive screenings, getting them to do flu shots and other immunizations, uh, other self-care education, as well as promoting healthy lifestyles. There is one statistics that there are eight behaviors and risks that result in top 15 most costly conditions. And these behaviors are something that we try to alter by doing a variety of different things uh, and, and trying to engage the population in a variety of ways. So what are the eight uh, activities? So the eight uh, lifestyles or behaviors are poor diet, physical inactivity, smoking, stress management, lack of health screening, alcohol consumption, uh, poor care compliance or uh, adherence to drugs, and in inefficient sleep. Uh, those are kind of the eight behaviors that lead to top 15 of the most chronic conditions, and they make up the 80% of the cost. Those are very, very high-level statistics, but if you just focus on those conditions and behavior alteration, lifestyle modification uh, plans like healthy nutrition um, and coaching on uh, you know, cooking classes or, or education on what's healthy to eat, uh, physical activity and getting people to be active about their uh, physical health, avoiding risky behaviors like excess alcohol consumption or tobacco uh, smoking, uh, you know, quitting smoking, preventive screenings, uh, which are very important for some of the uh, uh, cancer screenings. And I have many, many cases where I've heard Early screenings did help them detect the cancer earlier and with the treatment earlier. And then the most challenging is stress management. Uh, everybody has stress in their life and it's impossible to tell somebody not to have stress. But then how to deal with it when you have stress, uh, when, when you have stress in life with whatever cause it is for, um, that's where we have to make available the programs for people to, uh, to go to or seek care from. So what organizations stand out to you as being particularly successful in this area? There, there are organizations that have been doing these wellness programs for a long time, and that's where they are able to develop the culture of wellness. And I strongly believe in that culture where you are part of a group or a community where everybody is engaged in a healthy activity, you are bound to do that. And that's something that we found out through extensive research we did in what motivates people to take care of their health. It's, there are two kinds of motivations. It's, one is intrinsic motivation and one is extrinsic motivation. So organizations often offer incentives for employees to engage in certain behaviors. But those incentives only go a, a short way. They usually just uh, do the, the least necessary thing and they result in short-term behaviors, but they don't necessarily do that for a long term. For example, giving somebody incentives to finish their health risk appraisal uh, or a health risk assessment or, or engage them uh, in a biometric screening. That's something will result in a short-term behavior. But the organizations who have had or seen success in, in healthy employee behavior is really working on this intrinsic motivation, which sustains behavior change, which is, 
what's in it for me and what is everyone else doing about it so that whole culture is where uh this is where the culture comes into play where you do a certain activity because you're part of a group that does that certain activity there are people who like walk during lunch hours uh, uh there are activities where groups are they compete with each other uh, and i'm talking about workplace wellness here the 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 different locations or different groups compete with each other for finishing certain kinds of wellness activities which could deserve, which is like you know either walking or um uh, uh, taking part in biometric screenings or some of the other activities i talked about earlier the uh participating in um, some of the lunch and learn sessions uh, online health education classes uh gym memberships uh provider pay uh, employer paid fitness trackers and the use of that those are the kinds of activities that people engage in that's what creates that culture and what we have seen is companies who engage in these cultures or organizations who engage in these activities for a long time create that kind of a wellness culture which is what uh, yields success into keeping that healthy population healthy employers can do very little about preventing some sort of uh hereditary diseases or genetic diseases or accidents for that matter we can do very little about but these are the areas where chronic illnesses are prevented from becoming good from becoming from good to bad to worse that's what that's where some of these activities are are, are come into play so how do you respond to an employee who says hey i i work here you know i don't want this company getting all this information i don't want big brother looking over my shoulder um how how do you get the employees to accept that every wellness activity and program that an employer rolls out has to be uh, hipaa compliant patient privacy is of utmost importance and unless the patient willingly participates in those you cannot force somebody to participate in these programs so it is completely given up to the the employee to decide whether they want to participate and engage in the wellness activities or not uh no hipaa uh, privacy patient privacy information is shared with the employer uh in a in a way that will uh violate any of the laws that govern the uh, health benefits area so that is definitely taken into account and the really the onus is on health education about really educating the employees uh, about what is good for them what is healthy for them what is good for them when they are not even employed with you but when they are old what helps with the healthy retirement and living life healthy once you are retired as well so that education the way you give it and for how long the organization has been doing it all that plays a role into employees willing to listen to that message does that lack of information that the employer has make it harder or more challenging to create that culture of fitness or how have people found a way to kind of address that so you cannot really start with a uh, uh without any ha- without having any baseline data uh, to know whether your program is working or not you can definitely keep on doing all these programs because there is no no matter what the data suggests it still works best if you if you educate your employees on healthy nutrition and help them quit smoking and help them uh, uh help them with uh, uh getting 
physically active and it'll teach them about how to engage in healthy sleeping activities, make them engage in preventive care, all of those things you can keep doing without having any data. So those are sort of the healthy behaviors that we were talking about earlier. Uh, where the data is important is to know what you're doing is actually yielding results or not. So we have some of metrics that we have created uh, to gauge the success of the program. And if the metrics are going in the right direction, which are directionally favorable, as I call it, that means your program is working. It may not necessarily reflect in your healthcare dollars because what you spend on healthcare as an insurer, a self-insured employer, depends a lot on other factors, what new drugs are coming in the market. We are, we are actually creating cures nowadays or finding, um, finding cures for diseases we didn't even know existed 10 years ago. So all of those things play a role in increasing your healthcare costs uh, going forward anyway, but if some of those metrics, meaning population as a whole, uh, are they getting better, are they getting healthier, we have some metrics that can tell you whether your wellness pro program is working or not, just based on those metrics. Are those focused on particular morbidities, or is this some sort of way of scaling across the entire population? No, they can be scaled across the entire population. Uh, but Particular morbidities like diabetics or cancer patients or hypertension patients, whether they are taking their medications or not, uh, your claims data can tell you because you know uh, at what interval they refilled those. So that means they are compliant with the medication that was given to them. Some of the biometric screening data can tell you a lot about whether the population as a whole uh, getting better in terms of their weight management. Uh, if the smoking numbers are dropping year over year, that means your smoking cessation program is working. And then eventually it should reflect in some of the utilization pattern as well. If people are using emergency rooms less, if people are using specialist care less. Primary care uh, visits, I would encourage them to, to do at least their annual preventive screening. So uh, that, that should be their whole study. Uh, but even if it goes up, we know they have a primary care physician that they are seeking care from. But uh, some of the metrics we look at are also utilization metrics that I mentioned earlier that can tell you sort of the movement of the, of the population as opposed to just healthcare dollars. Sure, so this isn't a very simple, um, you know, three-point targeted uh, observation. You're, you're really looking at a whole uh, slate of different factors and coming up with a picture based upon that, right? I can tell you, for a large group of population, the chronic conditions that make up the top four complex conditions or chronic conditions that are uh, more than that consume more than 25% of your costs are usually cardiovascular disease, musculoskeletal disease, cancer care, and chronic kidney disease or chronic renal disease. Those are your four chronic conditions that are predominant reasons uh, of your more than 25% of your dollars. And then you have some of the um, uh, wellness activities that I talked about or the lifestyle drivers of chronic diseases that give rise exactly to that. So if we work on those, eventually we should see some benefit of engaging in those wellness activities in reducing these types of chronic conditions. That's, that's the ultimate hope. So conceptually, you start with those four conditions and you try to get 
programs up that address those conditions, um, and that's really the, the initial focus for when you start up these programs? Exactly. That is exactly the initial focus when you start with the programs is focusing on these conditions, which are really the result of those eight different high-risk behaviors that I talked about that we can alter, and then there are different activities that you can engage in which result in those uh, in, in reduction of those eight behaviors that ultimately give rise to the chronic conditions. So it does depend a lot on uh, the person's willingness to even undertake those. That's still a million-dollar question. So how do demographics and socioeconomic factors tie into this? Changing demographics has been a very interesting topic to me. Uh, a few years ago, I, I studied the millennial population. I wrote a small article on that, the millennials' behavior in healthcare. And it's a, it's a, it's a positive trend uh, because they have so much information available to them. Uh, and that demographic, the positive, uh, the the ability to have that that uh, health education at the at their fingertips has helped them a lot in understanding what's healthy to eat uh, and and how much physical activity they can engage in uh, and the tracker that all these tracking devices have made available to us. All of that is a positive movement, especially with the changing demo demographics. The older population, on the other hand, did not have all these uh, means of um, uh, e either instant information or tracking devices. So at that time, we used to engage in mailings at home, and a lot of times they were probably unopened. But the, again, the, the advent of smartphones has, has come to our rescue. So you've been doing this 24 years. Have you uh, seen an evolution in how patient engagement occurs. You've, you've alluded to that with the millennials and with the cell phones, but why don't you take us back and tell us, here's what we used to do and, and maybe we go forward and figure out uh, what are some of the things you see that you think are particularly interesting going forward. When I started in this career 20 plus years ago, uh, we used to actually send mailings to people's houses. Uh, half of the times we didn't have the correct address. Uh, or uh, they were unopened. So I think most of that effort was, was wasted. Anything we did at the workplace or work site uh, was, was adopted more because people at least would come to work and they would uh, see the flyers in the lunch rooms and some healthy activity uh, competition going on at work. Uh, they would see that through a flyer. Uh, not everybody had computers at work at that time too, so the email was not prevalent as well. Um, as the years go by, the usage of emails became more and more predominant, and it was a more targeted communication you could do using emails. Uh, when I was talking about earlier, the uh, when we used to send flyers at home, the disease management firms, which as you know, uh, chronic care management or disease management, where a third party would pick up the phone based on your claims data, and they would call to people's houses. Most of those calls probably went unanswered too because those were calls from some random professional that you don't want to hear from, especially the call comes during your dinner hour or, or when you're not home. Those were wasteful as well. But then the smartphones came, and I'm particularly excited about smartphones because you can do, you can develop apps that people like. Let me come back to another evolution, which is the uh, tracking devices. Uh, like the like your uh, Apple Watch or a Fitbit, 
that's something somebody is wearing 24 7. So we were simply not privy to that data before about how much you walk today. We just could take it uh, based on what the people would tell you or based on the distance that they t I walk from this train station to the office. But now the tracking devices can actually monitor their walk even within the office. So if somebody is taking the trouble of taking the stairs or walking everywhere uh, within the building, it tracks their steps as well and they can get rewards or incentives based on the walking they completed and nobody has to lie about that data because that data you can feed directly to the monitoring device if they are willing to do so obviously. So we've talked a lot about physical health. Uh, how do you feel behavioral health interventions tie into pop health? That's a very difficult one because behavioral health is a very still a very delicate issue uh, and people may or may not seek care uh, when they should. Uh, a lot of times they don't even know they need to seek care because uh, if you're depressed, you don't know that you're depressed. Again, the education, the health education has helped us uh, in kind of making people aware that they may need help. Uh, the, what we have observed is the millennial population is more open to seeking behavioral health counseling. They are okay to tell each other, hey, I'm going to see my shrink today, as opposed to the previous generation where it was sort of looked down upon or, or tabooed. Uh, so behavioral health has been a tricky issue. But one other one area where I feel very optimistic about behavioral health is telehealth or telemedicine. Having run some of the behavioral health programs, we know there is a big scarcity of behavioral health professionals in some parts of the country, but telehealth is really here for rescue. Uh, we have seen some statistics from uh, the the telemedicine organizations where they are fulfilling the void of behavioral health counselors in areas uh, where there was uh, lack of those professionals uh, by having by um, having telehealth available to them uh, obviously you have to still abide by the state rules of licensure which they all do uh, very a lot of physicians are licensed in multiple states so you could be seen by somebody from outside the state as well but that counseling uh, works very well because it is a one-on-one -on -one counseling you can do that at the privacy of your home or office and um, you don't need much physical contact so all of those things are favorable for delivering behavioral health counseling through telemedicine. And the younger generation is adopting it very, very quickly. So what are some ways payers have helped employers um, you know, advance in population health? Self-insured employers typically engage uh, in population health by hiring a specialized vendor to deliver that. Some of your large payers, like the the Bupas as we call them, uh, they do have uh, their own wellness slash chronic condition management subsets of firms that they can have your employer contract with. It's usually an uh, add-on benefit or it could be part of the entire bundle that they're offering. But that's usually not a core competency of most of the large payers we rely on some of the specialized providers to help our self-insured clients buy population health programs like the wellness or chronic condition management or even telemedicine even though it is sort of could be available through your payer uh, we think it's best done by a third party just because they have spent more time 
researching um, and delivering those programs based on their experience so far. Do you think utilization review is an effective tool in the context of population health? Not so much population health per se. Uh, utilization review is an effective tool just to make sure that the right coverage is made available to the right member if it is part of their benefit plan. It is also useful in weeding out some excess uh, or unnecessary services that could be asked by the provider community of that uh, patient as well. So it's helpful in utilization management, but I don't, I don't necessarily call that population health management. Where do you think the future is going in, say, the next five years with population health? Are there, are there any trends you're seeing or anything particularly exciting? So I, I actually feel, uh, as I mentioned, the exciting things are the smartphones and the wearables. Uh, and those are uh, really, really uh, adding a lot of value. Uh, I really think the future of healthcare is in the smartphone. Whether you consume, how you consume healthcare, how you educate yourself, uh, and how you monitor progress, uh, how you uh, kind of reward, incent somebody and then reward them. Everything can be done through the smartphones. The wearable technology is another one that helps you track your progress. But that also allows us to have this personalized communication, which I think is very important for somebody to engage a consumer. The personalized communication. Uh, my, my Apple Watch every day uh, in the morning tells me, uh, Sadhana, you closed two rings yesterday. There are usually these three fitness rings that are available on your iWatch. Anybody with the Apple Watch will know. And it tells me that personally, Sadhana, you can still do it. Uh, get all three today. You closed one yesterday, get all three today. That kind of a personalized communication I think is very important. Uh, it tells you to stand every hour because that's one of the goals is stand every hour. Um, and then uh, the interactions that you can have, you can share your, your wearable smartphone data with a group of population, so there is a competition involved. If I share my data with some of my peer groups, uh, today I am ashamed to do that because I didn't really walk much today. But on the days I, I really do well, I love to share it with my group. Uh, and it's one of those things that makes you engage in the right behavior if you have uh, groups. Integrating this technology with providers is something that we all need to do. Uh, we don't do a good job of that. We as in, I mean, I, I, by that I mean the, either the employers or the payers. We don't do a good job of integrating this with the physician community or the provider community. This message to lose weight and to kind of take care of better health of yourself, if that message comes from that person's physician, it it is it is taken much much more uh, seriously by the patient. So if we have that information as uh, about like the weight gain that the physician otherwise doesn't know, if we share it that if we share that with the patient's physician, the physician's advice to the patient about losing weight is is taken much more seriously and it's much more effective. So I think we can leverage physicians by use of these devices as well, where you kind of create an ecosystem. You set forth a lot of factors that really make it seem that pop health can be quite successful in the workplace. Can you address um, population health outside the workplace and why it might be effective or not, or what particular hurdles you see in that regard? And my experience really is limited to the workplace, so I cannot speak much about outside of workplace, but if 
if again for population health you need to be part of a group uh, or uh, by a group of individuals so you could be part of a church or part of a school or a school district and that could be the population health and that's where they can have programs where one school competes with the other for their children's healthy behaviors i would say that is part of population health or one church can uh, com <laughs> compete with the other if we if they have programs within the church which are which are about nutrition counseling and weight loss and smoking cessation uh, so i've seen some of the um, communities engaged in that as in public community a public park a uh, public park one public park engaged in competition with another public park about whose population ran most that month and if you if you have communities involved in doing that that becomes population health outside of workplace but again you have to have certain ownership as well as certain incentives in engaging in that employers have that incentive because their hope is they are going to manage costs by engaging in population health because i'm preventing these people from getting from bad to worse or getting from good to bad i want to keep my healthy people healthy so they cost me less the ultimate hope is that that they cost me less while they are employed with me Dr. Peralker, thank you so much for appearing on Talking Pop Health. If anyone has any questions, follow-up, criticisms, concerns, or anything else, please feel free to email me at etower.thompsoncoburn.com. Thank you.